This is a Federal News Network podcast. The COVID pandemic not only made the world more dangerous, it also made it more complicated. When and how federal employees and contractors should return to their normal workplaces, that's turned into one of the toughest questions to nail down. The policy work falls to a special committee known as the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. And for an update, we turn to the Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget, Jason Miller. Mr. Miller, good to have you on. Good to be on. Thank you for having me. What does the DDM do with respect to the task force? So we support the task force and use OMB tools including management tools to issue guidance across the government. All right. So the latest guidance talking about federal employees, there's a lot about religious exemptions, and it's pretty clear that people need to answer a questionnaire. There's also a lot of discretion. My question is who, not so much the employee seeking the religious exemption, what they have to do, but who decides the questions here? Does it have to go all the way up to the cabinet secretary or or what? And Tom, to be clear the questions that were provided by the task force with regards to a potential template that agencies could use for legally required exceptions for religious reasons or for medical reasons. So Tom, if I may, I would love to just do a quick context setting and then jump in on the specifics of that issue, because I think the arc of this effort is important in talking through some of the specifics, including the most recent updates to guidance, which the task force has been issuing on a, reg- on a regular basis. First, the first action, the very first action the president took actually was an executive order to protect the health and safety of the federal workforce. So this entire arc started in the very first moment the president took office, obviously vital to the mission of the federal government that the more than 4 million uh, employees are safe, are healthy, their families are safe and healthy. And it's something the president believes deeply in. And as an employer, it's the right thing to do. Now, on that same day, January 20th, we had 2 million people vaccinated in this country. Today, we have 222 million with at least one dose. That is more than 80% of adults 18 and older. As we were, uh, as an administration, the president was taking additional measures to address the surge in cases late in the summer and into the early fall associated with the Delta variant. We put in place a requirement for the federal workforce to be vaccinated. We're in the process of implementing that requirement. One way in which a federal employee can comply with that requirement is to seek and receive a legally required exception, either for sincerely held religious beliefs or for uh, disability medical reasons. In order to create consistency and support agencies in that. The task force issued a potential template that agencies can utilize that had a series of questions. Those templates were supported by the expertise of the Department of Justice and the EEOC, both of which have deep knowledge and expertise in this area. Agencies have to make those decisions regarding their own employees, but The task force supported by DOJ and EEOC was trying to provide a template so that agencies, knowing that they're going to be addressing a number of these exception requests, that they are provided with appropriate information to support that process. But my question is not so much the burden on the employee for filling out that template and making their case religious or or medical exemption, but who is the decider who says, okay, you don't need the shot? Yep. Uh, That that is up to each individual agency. So each individual agency 
is making those decisions on a case-by-case basis, supported by information provided by DOJ and EEOC. We have been further supporting agencies by providing them with expertise and guidance from those two agencies. And each agency is going to run their own process for how they uh, work through those exceptional costs. We're speaking with Jason Miller. He's the Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget, because I would think there'd be the need to train the deciders at some level so there is consistency in how the template is used to reach a decision. That's right. So there's extensive interagency engagement on all aspects of implementation of health and safety protocols and has been since the beginning of the administration. Safe for Federal Workforce Task Force provides that guidance. From OMB, we support that interagency effort, both the task force, but also pulling all of the agencies together, not just those on the task force, but all agencies because of that implementation. We have the key management leaders from each agency. We work closely with the Chico Council. That's the chief human capital officer in each agency so that the senior officials that are overseeing these processes and making determinations for how they're run have complete clarity around any questions that they have, that they're able to talk amongst their peers at other agencies so that we can support and enable that consistency. But ultimately, the decision-making still rests with each individual agency. Because there are a million variables in this. For example, someone that might have a religious exemption claim and they have been consistent in their religion and their adherence to it their entire lives, but the latest guidance says there might also be people that came lately to this particular belief, but that doesn't make it any less sincere. But it does introduce variability into how you would decide. So just to make a crude example, you can't have one decision maker in one agency saying, well, you've only been that XYZ religion for six months. I don't believe you. Denied. You want a consistent application of it across agencies. It just seems like a lot of variables to take into account and still have consistency. Is there any ongoing work on this to make sure that as these more variables come to light, the, yeah. there is consistency and there's a North Star against which uh, to measure decisions? Yeah. Un- undoubtedly, we have a large federal government and there will be a number of cases that each individual agency will have to handle. I think we feel confident in the consistent application of this. You are right that it has to be done on a case-by-case basis, uh, and we're providing full and consistent support across agencies so that they are not in a position where they're where they are trying to make decisions without appropriate information support, including from expertise outside of their agency when it's needed. And let's talk about contractors for a moment. I mean, the Biden administration has two objectives here. One, to get the most people in the country vaccinated as a way to get us past the pandemic, and then also to ensure that people with COVID are not coming into federal workplaces and spreading it or potentially spreading it there. So my question is the policy with respect to contractor mandates for vaccination. Are you primarily concerned with contractors as entities in the economy or as specifically federal contractors who come in contact with federal people and facilities? Yeah. And let me try and reframe your your the two objectives that you laid out. I think you generally are pointed in the right direction. One. That's the best I ever do, by the way. There you go. (laughs) There you go. The the first is uh, we are trying to increase the number of people that are vaccinated. It's the best tool that we have to deal with the pandemic. We now, as I noted, have 222 million Americans with at least one dose, more than 80% of adults. 
All of the evidence shows vaccination requirements work. In September, when the president laid out a six-prong plan, the first prong of that plan was to vaccinate the unvaccinated. So one aspect of our requirements for employees and for contractors is about getting more Americans vaccinated. That is undoubtedly part one. And, and, and one piece of that is as the largest employer in the country, is leading by example, leading by example, setting out a standard that we want other employers to follow. We've been very clear and very vocal about both encouraging and cheering uh, a range of employers that have taken action, including early action on vaccination requirements. That is the path forward. It's going to reduce the number of deaths, reduce hospitalizations, keep our schools open and keep our economic recovery on track. But yes, part two is we think it's the right thing to do as an employer for our mission, for all of the actions that we're taking. Keeping people safe and healthy will make our agencies function better. Our contractors are part of our federal family. Vaccination requirements within the contractor community we believe, is the right approach both to tackling the pandemic and to delivering on the the broad set of missions that contractors are supporting across the entirety of the federal government. Would it be safe to say then that the you will use, say, the Labor Department mechanism for overseeing federal contractor activity in terms of their being employers would then extend to a vaccine mandate? That is the Office of Federal Contractor Compliance Programs. Yeah, our, our, our contractor requirement, I think the president articulates this well, which is if you want to work for the government, you need to get vaccinated. If you want to do business with the government, you need to vaccinate your workforce. We are trying to ensure a substantially similar approach between what we're doing for the federal workforce and what we're doing for federal contractors. We believe the federal contracting community is part of the federal family, providing vital mission support vital services, vital products across the entirety. And that's how that's how we're operating. Because a lot of contractors in the services area were saying, well, we have people on federal work sites working side by side with federal employees, but then the mandate seems to also apply to, say, product vendors who are just shipping things from warehouses and never set foot on federal property. You're saying the mandate from the White House standpoint applies to everybody all the same, regardless of whether they have people on site. The contractor requirement is for uh, employees that work on or in connection with a federal contract, as well as contractor employees that work in a covered workplace. That's the term that we are utilizing. The the covered workplace includes if there if it can be reasonably expected that contractor covered contractor employees are working in a specific workplace. So it applies to contractor owned controlled workplace environments, even for individuals who may not be coming to a federal work site. Again, we see that entire operation as part of our federal family. And we think it is what is best for the federal government. And just looking at this from a working standpoint as an OMB employee at a high level, did you ever expect it to go this late, nearly a year since the inauguration of President Biden? Safe to say we thought it would be pretty much behind us by April or so. Look, I think the the president has been quite clear on that, was quite clear on that this summer as we were dealing with the Delta variant. I think we we all want the pandemic behind us. We want a path out. Uh, we're taking aggressive measures to do just that, keeping our economic recovery on track, keep our kids in school as the parent of three young children. 
I know the ins and outs of that quite well on a personal level. And I think speaking for me uh, in this role as the, as the DDM, this is a, a big part of our job in front of us, and we have to do it of the utmost importance. Undoubtedly, we want to move as, as quickly and expeditiously, and I, I don't think anyone would tell you that they didn't wish you know, we, were, we were further. We're making a lot of progress, uh, and we're seeing that every day. We reached 80% of adults over the age of 18 vaccinated in the country, we're seeing case counts come down. We're seeing the economy continuing to move forward. And looking at that set of the federal workforce that was forced to suddenly telework a couple of years ago, do you have any sense of what percentage of that group has come back to the office? I mean, it's not completely empty anymore because all you have to do is look at the traffic going into D.C. This is an incredibly important topic for the federal workforce, both today and then into the future, not just the next few weeks, months, but the next, but the years going forward. This is a topic that every uh, employer is dealing with for the federal workforce, we had 3% regularly teleworking uh, prior to the pandemic. Very quickly, we shifted to 59% of the federal workforce regularly teleworking. There are two things about that. One is that still meant that more than 40% of federal employees had to be on a worksite to perform their mission. And oftentimes, we message, we talk about the folks who are working uh, remotely. But we need to focus. We need to remember and focus on those people who came right through the pandemic before we had approved vaccines and were on the job and doing their job. The people who work from home or, or elsewhere were on the job doing their job and delivering critical services. And it's been, I think, an impressive feat for the federal workforce. Uh, I can't tell you the precise percentage of where we are. We're working with agencies on the reentry process. Part of that is making sure that people are vaccinated, making sure that agencies have safety plans in place, making sure that they're engaging with their employees and with their employees' labor representatives, federal employee unions, to make sure that we have uh, the implementation steps in place to increase reentry. It is undoubtedly down from 59%. What I would note is, and one thing we have been clear, we're not going to snap back to February of 2020. We've learned a lot. Just like all employers, there are ways that we can do our work more effectively, more efficiently. We've identified ways to improve service delivery, do things remotely that are better for the beneficiaries of those services. We're going to be a more flexible employer, period. Federal government will be a more flexible employer across the board, every single agency than it was before the pandemic. I think that's a good thing. I think we'll be more competitive in the labor, uh, the labor market. And we're going to be doing everything we can to strengthen and empower the federal workforce. And getting through this and doing it in the right way is critical to that. And we should note that you are calling from your federal office since we're on a Zoom call, which the listeners can't see. But I presume you're in the office because no one would ever pick curtains like that for their house. And uh, just to switch. <laughs> I, bring, I, I bring those flags with me everywhere that I go. To. <laughs> right. OK, good. And just switch gears while we have you. The launching of the pilot, according to the release, of the pulse surveys across the federal government. These are to augment the annual FEVS survey, Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. And tell us more about what you're hoping for with these pulse surveys, what you're hoping to accomplish with them. Look, we we want real, ongoing engagement from the federal workforce to shape how we, uh, as a federal government, are managing through together. This This specific is a pilot. It's the first time we've ever conducted a government-wide pulse survey of the federal civilian workforce. 
we're going to see whether it's an effective way to gather additional data on how our workforce is doing. A number of our agencies individually conduct agency-specific pulse checks. Many, many employers throughout the country, both public and private sector, conduct pulse checks. We are testing whether or not uh, this could be a thing that supplements the annual FEVs, which obviously is a deep and rich data set with uh, multi-year history that's an important tool. Uh, and whether, whether or not this specific pilot works, uh, we want deep and ongoing engagement with the, with the workforce. Will each pulse survey then focus on a different segment, say different racial demographics or males and females in the federal government? Or will you ask a different set of questions across, across the board each time? Our, our intent is a broad pulse survey that goes to everyone, it takes just a minute or two to fill out would have the same questions irrespective of which agency you worked at, where in the country you were, what other, you know, whatever your demographic information is. We want a, we want a broad uh, cross-cut. But each Pulse survey will ask a different set of questions. You'll take the Pulse on some different aspect. We have the ability to change the questions for different Pulse surveys. We have the ability to keep some of them the same so that we have consistent data lines. But... Again, this is a pilot, uh, and it hasn't been done in this way, and we'll you know, see if it's an effective tool or if we get useful data back. We don't know yet. And the first one is in the field now? Correct. And just briefly, what does it ask? Like, how you doing, or you like teleworking, that kind of thing? Or what are you asking people the first time around? Yeah, we're asking general questions about uh, their current experience, about their engagement in the workforce, about health and safety, about inclusion. Important questions. We're very focused on uh, ongoing engagement with the federal workforce. Jason Miller is Deputy Director for Management at the Office of Management and Budget. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. 
Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual. And that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon. Um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me. And he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up. uh, Make decisions. uh, Do what you think is right. And you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. 
what a wonderful way to to spend an assignment with uh, with backup and and guidance like that. What what great great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. (laughs) Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.